Greeting, beloved, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, and based on his love, we're here today. If you have your Bibles, you could go to Romans chapter 8. We've been here for a couple of months, and we're at the end of our journey, and what a journey it was with Romans 8, Romans 8, but also with our Lord And today we are coming to an end of this blessed, blessed trip. And we come to these verses, we're going to read from verse 35 and down, us to a pinnacle of God's love. We come to, as you would say, to the Mount Everest of God's love. And I hope you're not tired to climb that mountain Because at the top of the mountain, you will see the great oasis where he would embrace you and encourage you with the triumph of his love. I hope this morning you will experience an awesome encouragement of God's love. Have you ever asked your child, If you have children or grandchildren, what would possible, what would be possibly to end your love towards them? What could they do, something so horrible, terrible, that you would abandon them? You know, we tell our children that we love them, but have you ever asked your child, what do you think, what is the end of my love? I asked my daughter the other day, And I said, do you think you could do anything possible to stop me loving you? And she thought a little, and she said, I think so. I said, what that would be? And she said, I think if I would buy 200,000 worth of Roblox in a non-game, you would be very angry and you would stop loving me. Somehow she calculated the worth of my love or the end of my love. But is there a limit to human love? Is there a limit to human kindness? Of course there is. But when we approach God and we approach his holy love, we often prone to think about him like if he's one of us. Like he's one of a kind of us. And instead, we should treat him very holy and different in his ability to love. And I tell you, he is not like us. And he is not like us in his love. And there is no limit to God's love, isn't there? The answer is definite no. Before we read our text, and Isaiah reminds us that can a woman forget her nursing child? And it says, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on my palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, he talks to Israel. Later in Isaiah 54, he said, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed by my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Or do we believe 
this text. Let's go to Romans 8, verse 35. It says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, the main idea that he communicates to us through these chapter, this chapters up to this point, and he culminates this, that there is no separation from God's love. There's nothing that could come into the relationship between you and your God if you are in Christ Jesus. And the main idea would be for us that we must be convinced, must be absolutely persuaded by this time, that the love of God will never let you go. Will never let you go. I'm going to construct my sermon based on three simple points. The first point, that there is a threat to the love of God. There's a threat. There's a possible threat to God's love. And yet we'll see point number two, that God is triumphant in his love and there is no threat to him. And that number three, we must trust in his love. A threat to love. Paul is asking this question. Verse 35, he said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he asked this question because we ask this question of ourselves. And we are challenged by this question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Perhaps this is the most important question in your life. He identifies the separation, and we know what separation is. The word separation is dealing with the threat itself. He's talking, what are we afraid of? What are the fear of Christian might be? And he said that the separation, or another word for that, would be a divorce. A divorce from God, divorce from this bridegroom. The word separation meaning complete isolation from one another. You know, when a husband and wife are divorced, they're no longer together. They're separated. You know, the marriage started so nicely and so romantically and everybody were loving each other and there are sparks in the airs, but there's something that came in in between them and their relationship and their love got cracked and led to complete separation. No longer they are together. No longer they could call themselves husband and wife. Their relationship is dead. Marriage is dead and the thrill is gone, baby like B.B. King would sing. They don't excite one another anymore, and they're separated. They fell out of love. That's what he's talking about. Is there something that could make Christ fell out of love with you? 
You know, and the truth be told, there are many things that we're separated in this life from. You know the separation really well, even though you might be not divorced, but you know that we are separated with our parents when we leave their house. We're separated from our children when they are leaving our house. We're separated from our workers when they've changed the job. We're separated from church, beloved church, when we move from place to place. We're separated from our friends. Sometimes we are separating from our youth. You know, our youth, our vigor and our strength. And ultimately, at one day, you will be separated from everything that you love. You will be divorced from this life and go to heaven. But one thing that Paul is driving us to, the conclusion that one thing that you would never be separated from, it is the love of Christ. Everything else is up for separation, but not this. We would never be separated from the love of our Savior, the love of Christ. You know, it's an important question here, what is the separation from? What is the separation from? Whose love is this that we are talking about? You might think that Paul is talking about your love to Jesus here. This is how I naturally take it. When we're going through trials, we're promised not that we would not stop loving Jesus, but that he would not stop loving us. The text doesn't mean our love for Christ. He doesn't say who shall hinder us from the loving Christ. Loving Christ. But Christ love to us. It is clear from the closing words of this chapter that it refers to the work of God and to the affections of God rather than our affection. It is not our, your and my love to Jesus that would never suffer. Even though God calls us, those who love God, it is his love that would never be removed from us and from his children. Paul is not saying here that there would never be a moment when you would grow cold in your love for Jesus. That's not what he's saying. It might be true. He doesn't say that you would never betray Christ. He doesn't say that you would never experience coldness in your relationship with Christ. He doesn't say that you would never sin against your love in God. But what he promises here that there's nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. And the answer is given here to the question in verse 35, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? And if I die right now in the middle of the sermon, I will give you an answer because in verse 39, he answers us, answered this question and he said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. At this moment, preacher should close his book and said, amen and amen, my job is done. Everything is just a bonus. Be convinced the love of God would never let you go. But look at the threat itself. Look at the list of threatening things. The challengers appears to the arena of the universe to trying to dry drive a wedge between us and the love of Christ. The question is whether these potential people or things could lead us away from believing that Christ loves us. This is what devil wants to do, by the way. 
This is what he does. His whole job description is this, to accuse before God things against us and to try manipulate God so that he would stop loving us. And he accused him day after day and night after night and say, how could you possibly love these people? And then he turns away from God and comes and whisper in our ears and saying, you are not worthy of his love. And he, because you did so and so, does not love you any longer. You know, realize that this challenges, it's not so much challenge before God, because God is love, but the challenge is to your faith. The challenge of these trials, whether Christ would abandon us and stop loving us, is to our faith, that we would stop believing in this kind of God. Nothing, brothers, sisters, friends, If you are in Christ, even ourselves can cancel the love of Christ for us. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world, before we did nothing good or evil, before we knew him. He has set his love on us. He sent his son for our sins, and since God gave his own son for us, who could be against us and what could separate us from his love? His love is not contained contingent on our worthiness or our performances because God in himself, it's only contingent on his character, whether he's going to change for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son in this. We know love that he God loves us and sent his son for the propitiation for our sins. But God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look at the list of challengers. There are seven of them. And he said, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can they move away the heart of God from us? Tribulation is a general idea for all kinds of sufferings, including persecution for your faith, trouble, sufferings coming your way that cause you pain. And Jesus said, before he comes the second time, there would be great tribulation, sufferings, uproars. When your life dreams are crushed because you trust Jesus in this situation, because you can't steal and cheat, when you are under pressure, when you feel like squeezed lemon, he said, tribulation would never change God's mind about you. The stress talking about inward sufferings, when you were placed in a tough spot, whether it's economic crisis, whether it wars, whether it's because you decided to follow Christ and now you're losing your job, whether you decided to speak about Christ and his love to the world and you are persecuted and you're placed between a rock and a tight place, as we say, and you're squeezed and you are inwardly struggling. You're suffering on the inside. He's talking about the distress. When Christ looked at you in your distress, he's not turning away from you. Persecution, oppression, harassment of your faith were slowly starting experience in here in Sacramento, California. Try to speak the truth in love about the homosexuality and you will feel that you are the one who hates everyone. And perhaps you could be cited and go to jail. 
You could throw in a jail. And the early church, they understood this clearly. When Paul says this persecution, they knew what he's talking about because many of them suffered already. In early church, people were persecuted and thrown in jails. Christians were arrested and set on fire as the human lanterns in the emperor's garden. They dipped in oil and set on fire. They were given to the wild beasts because of Christ to entertain the crowd. And when Christ looked at these people, he's not abandoning them. Famine and nakedness. Famine and nakedness is a sign, probably a result of persecution, but also a sign of poverty and sign of shame. It is often we see people, even now, starving to death. Nakedness. Slaves in Rome were paraded naked as the trophies of war. And it was showing that they are completely devoted from any honor. And they're in shame. This is what Christ experienced on the cross. He was naked on the cross, put to death. Did God turn away his love from Christ? Peril, any kind of danger of life. Paul uses this word eight times in 2 Corinthians. He said, I experience dangers everywhere I go. Sword, finally he's speaking about execution. Danger that is just threatening your life. Paul himself experienced all of the above up to this moment, except the sword. And later on, he will be himself beheaded by the sword. And he could add this thing into his resume, that I have experienced that. These are dangerous things. These are horrible things. These are fiery things, Peter said. These are evil things that could happen to you and to your Christian life. These are the things that we could fear and afraid that it happened to us or to loved ones. Have you wondered ever, what if I would be in this situation? God graciously right now passed this by you all this peril and sword and tribulations. Perhaps, perhaps they're coming. But have you ever thought like, how would I react in this situation? How would I do? What would happen to my love to Christ? But that's not the point. The point is that Christ would never turn his face from you. He doesn't say how they dealt in these situations yet. He wants Christians to believe in the love of God and not in their own love. No matter what would happen to your life, Christ loved you. I remember when my son, Arthur, it was little, and he had a very favorite blanket, you know, maybe familiar with you, for you, the blanket that goes everywhere that he goes. It, it was inseparable from the blanket no matter what happened. It should be always be with him. If he goes to bed, it should be there. If he goes in the car, he should be there. If he goes to playground, he drags it with it. It was beloved blanket. He loved this blanket more than anything, any other blanket or any other toys. And the problem was that the blanket was so torn and so stained and ripped already that it just, you know, it became a, a piece of rag, really. 
Cleaning, it was a major problem for us because he would not let us do the cleaning. And after we clean it, just like going apart, even worse. It became a useless rock at the end, but he would not let it go. He was, boy, that blanket received so much love. It doesn't matter how it looked. It doesn't matter how it smelled. He loved it until one day we were going back from San Diego trip and we stopped by at Jack in the Box later at night just to eat and then he fell asleep and I took him in my hand and put him in, in the car seat and we drove off and we forgot the blanket accidentally. Oh, that was a horrible thing, but he had to experience this separation from the blanket that he loved. You know, in a sense, we are God's ragged blanket. Although we have been damaged and dirty by sin, although people push us around, although people reject us and separate from us, God loves us beyond the measure. He placed his us in his son, and he said to you and me, you are mine. We are loved, and he will never let us go. We are embraced by his tireless, relentless, infinite, and everlasting life, David Roper said. But you would say, what is the intent of these sufferings? If God loves you so, why would he allow us to go through them? Why is it so common to a Christian life that the trouble is this not just unique? It's not just, a, it's not just designed for Apostle Paul or some superheroes in faith. He's, he's talking about everybody. In verse 36, he brings this point down. He says, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. He's borrowing from Psalm 42, and God expressed his love and sworn his love to Israel. And Israel cries out and say, what is happening? What is happening to your love? Why is your love coming in such a package? Didn't you say in Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with my loving kindness. Why are these severe threats that come in to us? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials. And they are fiery. Why are we singing the Psalm 13 song so often? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? But Paul said, these are anticipating things. This is, this is a normal in Christian life. That's what Jesus promised us. You know, we... We like to soak on the promises of God that everything's gonna be well and that he's gonna bless you and so on. But part of the promise that Jesus gave us, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace, but in this world you will have what? Trouble, trouble. These are not just promised things but they're coming from our Lord directly. Christ sends them our way. You know, if you remember servant Job, he understood this point really well. I mean, he did not know what's happening over there in heavenly places and what the argument was 
And he, but he saw the evil in his life and he brought these charges against God and he said, I know, I know. Though he slay me, he said. Though he slay me. He knew where they coming from. They were not just accidental. They were just not created chaos by Satan. It was from God. Though he slay me, he said, I will hope in him. The question arises in my mind, if God loves us so, why these things would ever happen to us? Why would a loving God who has given himself up for us allow us to go through these sufferings? Is he good? Is he care? Does he care? Is he kind? What's happening here? Why would God, who swears that he loves us, would allow us to go through these sufferings? Especially those who serve him in a ministry. As such things like trial, persecution, sufferings, distress, poverty, shame, nakedness, and even death be included in the love of God? And the answer is, yes, they are. They are. We're struggling. And we're misguided and misjudge the love of God. We think that our distress and sufferings is the result of God's anger for us, and that he less, uh, likes us less. But instead, all of these things draw him nearer to us and make his love more exciting and kindly. I'll give you an illustration as we finish up this point. A little girl saw a necklace of pearl in the thrift store and she asked her mom she, if she could have it. Mom said, it's just only a dollar, no problem. She bought it for her. And she got so attached to this fake, fake pearl necklace. She was super excited. She loved it. And she wore it everywhere. She was inseparable with that. Her dad saw that. And he, one night when he was putting her to sleep, she, he was saying, honey, do you love me? And she said, yeah, daddy, I love you. And he said, can I have your necklace? And she said, no, never. I love it too much. It's mine. And so day after day, it was the same two questions. When he put her to sleep, he asked her, do you love me, darling? And she said, yes, I do. Can I have your necklace? No. And it was like going on for a couple of months until one night he comes in and, and, and she was kind of weeping and crying and the necklace was not on her neck. It was in her hand. And uh, she said, I know you want to get my necklace, Daddy, but I love you more so you could have it. At this point, he pulled out, out of his pocket a real pearl necklace. And he said, well, this is what I give it to you. Our loving God, see, he does not promise to us this life without problem. He doesn't. He doesn't give us success according to what we think success is. You know, he does not promise us that you would have a comfortable life. He does not promise to us a loving family. He did not promise us a loving husband. He does not promise to us a loving wife. He doesn't promise to us a believing children. He doesn't promise us respect in the church. He didn't promise us good health. 
He didn't promise us life without problem. He did not promise us that we would never be persecuted, rejected, misunderstood, and hated. That's not what he promised. But what he did promise is eternal life with him. And he did promise that in all of these things, his love never changes, that there would be no wall between us and him. And not even for a second, he would regard us anything less than precious. That's his promise. You know, sometimes we treat our God as we treat Santa Claus. Our God is not like Santa Claus, you know, who supposedly he knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you're being bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. He's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town, brothers and sisters. So if you're not on a naughty list, you will get his presence and he will distribute his love toward you. So we bring this heretical theology to our Christianity. God loves those who are good and those who are not naughty. But the last time I checked in Romans 3, everybody's on the naughty list. Everybody is bad. So what are the chances that we would be loved by God based on us? Oh, well, I'm glad that our God is not like Santa Claus. Santa Claus is not Christian. At best, he's a Catholic, okay? We sing another song. Praise the Savior, ye who know him. Who can tell how much we owe him? Gladly let us render to him all we are and have. Jesus is the name that charms us. He for conflict fits and arms us. Nothing moves and nothing harms us while we trust in him. Trust in him, ye saints forever. He's faithful, changing never. Neither force nor guile can sever those he loves from him. That's what we sing. Be convinced the love of God will never let us go. And it says that there's a triumph of God's love. The second thing that I want to point out and prove to you that there is a triumph of God's love. No matter what you experience in life, verse 37 stands strong. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The triumph. This is surprising, isn't it? I mean, this verse surprised me. Like I was going away so good, and I understand the sufferings, but after, especially verse 36, that we were considered a sheep, slaughtered, right? To be slaughtered. All of a sudden, he said, these sheep are, are really actually conquerors. There are overwhelmingly conquerors. There are heroes. There are superheroes. We are victorious in Christ. And the point is not that Christ is victorious here, but us, us are we victorious. We are overwhelmingly conquer. And not just in some things, right? Look with me. It's not just in some things or occasionally sometimes you overcome this, but in all of these things. Paul, what are you talking about? 
He identifies the triumph in our lives. And the word that he used, hooper nikomen, or hooper nikao. It comprised from two words, combination of two words. Hooper, it's super. Like it's just abundantly super. And nikao, or Nike, that we use in, in our uh, in our language is victor or conquer or or the victory. So combining two words meaning that we are super victors. We are super heroes, super conquerors. And I'm sure as you read in this, this is exactly how you feel right now. Right? This is exactly how you feel. Like you get up in the morning as a superman, you're dealing with all the problems, no matter what happens to your way and, and comes your way, you come home, you are on the horse, you are conqueror. And I want to ask Paul, seriously? Seriously? I feel like a devastated loser at times, and many times, not as just a conqueror or superman. What are you talking about? Like, I would like to believe this verse, but it's so hard to grasp in what way we're triumphant in these things. Look, last week I was sick. I was laying down in my bed, and I was not a triumphant at all. Now, I, of course, conquered this with the pills and some vitamins and liquid and chicken soup, and so I could say I conquered. And in some way, we think this way, that we're going to conquer in this way. We're going to do something, we're going to overcome, and we will ride triumphant because we are strong and holy and great. But do you feel victorious? Who among us overwhelmingly conquer in, in this way? Sometimes I feel that we are bringing this, our way of thinking how we are conquerors. What do you mean, Paul, that we are more than conquerors? Some commentators, you know, they're clever. They say, well, Christ is conqueror, but we're more than Christ. Uh, I do not know. Uh, Christ died. Christ was persecuted. Christ was going hungry and without place to live. We are in some ways following his steps. In what way we are conquerors? What is this victory that he's talking about? And practically speaking, I'll tell you what it is. It's not just defeating these things. It's not defeating the sword. Because you could defeat sword with sword, right? You could defeat nakedness with abundance of food, uh, with abundance of clothes, and, and famine with abundance of, of uh, food. But that's not the defeat he's talking about. The victory that he's talking about is the victory of your faith. It's in those things when everything is going wrong and you are going down that you are not defeated in your faith that Jesus loves you. It's, it's ability to use these things that comes your way that design to destroy you. That you could use these as a stepping stone instead of stumbling blocks and you become more than conquerors because it builds your faith in Christ. The triumph of our faith is in the fact that
that we could see God's love through these things. That you are not dismayed about character of God, who God is, and how to overcome it, but you know that behind all of this is God who loves you. And it's just a matter of fact when you will experience and fully his embrace. And you are able to trust God in every situation. As Paul and as Stephen, when he was dying, he said, I see him. I see through these stones and the angry mob, I see him. More than conquerors. A conqueror is the one who defeats the enemies. But we're super conquerors. The one who uses the enemy's resources to build and advance your purposes. Does it make sense? What war with God's enemy devil and his forces? And he wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy us like he tried to destroy Job. He destroyed his family, his prosperity, his health. You know why? He was not concerned with all of those things. He was aiming and gunning for his heart that he would put the wedge between him and the love of God and say, well, look, he does not love you anymore. That's why these things happening to you. That is why the purpose of these sufferings and the purpose of all this victory is to encourage us in our faith to be like Jesus. Right? It's kind of repetition in verse 28, and we know that in all these things, God works for good. All of these things work for good for us. Because God's purpose is in verse 29, that he, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and became conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. That means that God has a purpose for us, what he's doing with us. He wants to confirm us into the image of Jesus and his son. And we could go and think, what is this image? And it's to be kind and loving and gentle and all so on. But this image starts with what very fundamental thing. That Jesus entrusted himself into the love of his father. That's what moved him. It is was trust that we could reflect and embrace in Jesus and follow this. In this way, we could be like Jesus even now. Remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? The very last words, what did he say? Father, look, I accomplished many things. Father, I'm giving my life away for these people. Father, look how great my ministry became. No, he said, Father, in to your hands, I what? Entrust my spirit. I trust you. I trust you in my birth. I trust you in my life. And I trust you in my death. You want to be like Jesus? Trust. Like Jesus trusted his father at the very moment when there's no love expressed seemed to be from the father and the father turned his face away from him. He trusted him. See this thought from a Sunday school song is very eminent and powerful. Jesus loves me. Yes, I know for the Bible tells me so. 
Sometimes I'm singing to myself this song, sitting in a car that nobody hears, that I am singing this little song. But oh, it's encouraging. You see, the secret of the triumph over these and, and through these all sufferings, whatever you're dealing with. As Italians would say, the secret is in the sauce, right? That's the secret is here in verse 37. He says, but in all these things, we're overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's the secret. Through him who loved us. It is this love that able us to go and triumph over all adversities in life. This is not a promise with condition attached. If you do this, God will do that. He said, no, he loved you in the past tense. It's already happened. The ability not to lose heart, not to throw the towel, not to give up, but to go on, it is in this that he loved you. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He said, the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. That's what keeps him going and gave himself up for me. This is the powerful faith. Powerful faith. Not the one that could raise the dead, the faith. Not the one that who could overcome the sicknesses. Not the one that could overcome the poverty. But the faith that is still believing in Jesus that he is for you. You know, when we're talking about this faith, sometimes we, we think like, okay, this is just a name. with just the words. You know, my kids, you know, sometimes uh, they put the empty jug of, of, of uh, empty gallon of, of milk back in the refrigerator. You know, it says milk, but they put it there. I don't know why. Why? Well, what's the logic for it? But that's, but when, when I take it, it, it says milk, but there's no substance in it. There's no milk. When we're talking about our faith, our faith has substance. It's not just a name. The love of God moves us. He gave himself up for us. We mean what we say. He was killed for our sins. How can we continue in them? Those who steal, steal no more longer. Those who lie, tell the truth. Those who live and, and have sexual relationship outside marriage, stop sinning. Because it's not just by name. You are by nature a different person. Christ sacrificed yourself, himself for you. That's what Jude said. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Meaning that the love of God is there. Keep yourself in the love of God. I like how Martin Lowen Jones, he said, indeed our chief defect as Christians, chief problem, is that we fail to realize Christ's love to us. How important is that we should meditate upon this love and contemplate it It is because we fail to do so that we tend to think at times that he has forgotten us or that he has left us. There was a debate in 1985 between Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein. Stein, I would say. Greg Bonson is a a great uh, apologist. Christian apologist, apologist, it doesn't mean that apologizes for Christianity. It means that he's defending Christianity. But Gordon Stein is an atheist, and there was like about two hours of debate. 
And I think in that, in that debate, after all presentation of all the arguments from both sides, Greg Bonson was asked a very personal question. They said, what makes you to believe that there is God? And his answer surprised me, probably surprised many. And instead of going to the ontological argument, the moral argument, or whatever argument, he simply said something along this line. He said, I experience God, and I know that he loves me. That's it. That's it. You see, you will not experience God's great love until you come as a guilty sinner to the cross and trust him in his forgiveness. You would not value his love until you understand that, that your life was trash and that he picked you up. You cannot be victorious even here now if you forget the thought that you be granted the love of Jesus. Nothing in this universe can separate us from the love of Christ and everything in this universe, whatever happens to us, is meant to strengthen our faith in the love of God for us. Be convinced. The love of God will never let you go. And finally, trust in this love. This is what he is aiming at. Verse 38 and 39, he said, for I am convinced. For I am convinced. For I am convinced. He's persuaded. Paul said, look, all the arguments aside, I'm persuaded. Believer is persuaded by the love of God to the point of conviction. Believer in the love of Jesus has a strong conviction that surpasses any other knowledge. You could know anything and many things about God, and that is a good thing, but this knowledge persuades you. Somebody asked Spurgeon, the king of preachers one day, what persuasion are you of? And he said, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's my persuasion. That was Paul's persuasion. That's what he's saying. I'm convinced here. Elsewhere, he said, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Some of you are not persuaded. I'm afraid some of you still believe that you could lose your salvation. That you could lose your place at the heart of God. Some of you are not convinced that the love of God is the strongest power in the universe. Some of you might be not convinced that you could never lose your salvation. Some of you are not sure that God completely saves you apart from you. Some of you might think that your salvation is hinges on your love toward God. Let me call it what it is. It is a heresy. It is not Biblical. This thought is a heretical thought. And I know you're bad on it with it, but let's put call the spade spade. We can go to number of Bible verses, but all we need is this two verses, 38 and 39. I'm convinced that nothing in this universe, Paul says, be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
But let me take out of the way something really quickly, and we're going to go uh, to the list. He's talking about us here, and the problem is that you might not be one of us. Because this us starts in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, us who are placed in Christ. It continues verse 4, that who are walking according to the Spirit. In verse 9, it's us that the Spirit of God dwells in. Verse 12, it's us who have no obligation to the flesh. In verse 17, it's us, and 14, that we're children of God and heirs of God. Verse 28, it is for us, everything works together for good. Verse 31, it says, God is for us, who could be against us. And now we're talking about this us, that we are convinced that nothing could separate us from the love of God. These are powerful enemies, neither life nor death. Everything that you experience in life or experience in death, from your beginning to the end, there's nothing could separate whatever you experience are and whatever you think are, what life could bring, the life could not oppose a challenge. And life is a positive thing, death is a negative thing, but it doesn't matter. It can't take away the love, nor angels, nor principalities. Doesn't matter what angel, good angel, bad angels, the devil or, or devil himself, there's nobody could separate us from the love of, Christ, of God. No present things, no things to come, no things that you experience, no things that you will experience tomorrow matters for God. The elect are secure in God. The treacherous lies of Jacob didn't change the love of God for him. The adulteries of David didn't change the love of God for him. The betrayer of Peter didn't change the love of Christ for him. Your yesterday's sins are unable, not able to separate you. And tomorrow, failures were not able to separate you from the love of Christ because that's what he promised. Nor not height, nor depth, nor things in heaven, nor things in hell. No matter how high you are and no matter how low you are, you can't get away from God's love. David says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol before you are there. Nor powers or any other created things. Here I have, I have the most famous, famous argument. Yes, nobody could separate me from the love of Christ except for myself. Wow, really. Unless you're not part of other created things, unless you are God, you have this power. But if you are a created thing, it says here clearly, no other, any other created things. And last time I checked, everybody in this room are created things. We too are creations. And no creation can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot separate ourselves. Even our faith is a gift from God. His hand shall never relax the, his grip upon us. His love will stand the test. This is a slam dunk argument. No contender is able to separate us from our Lord. Absolutely nothing in this creation can thwart his purpose for believers in Christ. What a climatic way to affirm the certainty of believers standing with God. What is our response then? What is our response? I know we're out of time. 
But I tell you, the response, the only appropriate response would be, wow, I praise you. Wow, I praise you. It should not produce arrogance or life careless about ministries to other life and differences. You know, it doesn't matter what God, what we could do because God loves us still. No, it is driving us to the praise for our God. Psalm 63 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Will praise you. One of the ways you will remind yourself about your victorious life in Christ is that when you open your mouth and sing, sing to him. To him. Not always we should sing Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? But we should open our mouth and sing. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast and measured, bondless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me is the current of your love leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love, the best, vast, the ocean of his blessing, sweet, the heavens of his rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus for my heaven, oh, heavens is he. This my everlasting glory, Jesus' mighty love for me. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him the glory forever. Amen. Father, help us. Help us to believe that what seems to be our losses are really gains. And that each one of affliction is abiding to this weight of glory. Nor hereafter only, but now. Help us to see the immense and unchangeable love which you express so freely and so generously in Christ Jesus our Lord. May our faith in your love grow through all that you send our way, whether good or bad. And may we never grieve your spirit by distrusting your promise that you leave us or forsaken us, but convince us that you love us with an everlasting covenantal love. Amen.